Welcome to the Arts and Entertainment Report. Today's program will be read for you by voice print volunteers Angela Cryhall and Donna Kakonge. Kate Taylor is the author of this article titled Breathing Life into the Dead Sea Scrolls from the June 29th edition of the Globe and Mail. The eight Dead Sea Scrolls now on display at Toronto's Royal Ontario Museum are tiny broken things. Each one is but a handful of fragments that fill a space no bigger than a half sheet of paper, contain perhaps a few hundred words, and must be viewed in a setting as dim as a nightclub. You need to peer closely to make out the small, neat lines of Hebrew letters, which may be difficult to do among the crowds that can be expected to descend on the exhibition this summer. And the crowds will surely descend. If it is hard to overestimate the slightness of their physical presence, it is equally hard to underestimate the cultural importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The cache of documents found in eleven caves at Qumran, on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea between 1947 and 1956, includes the oldest extant versions of the Hebrew Bible, whose stories form the foundation for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The three religions that worship the God of Abraham, dating from the third century B.C. to the first century A.D., the scrolls are as much as 1,000 years older than previous versions of the Bible, and also include non-canonical religious texts such as prayers and biblical commentary, and secular texts such as land deeds. They are not merely evidence of the religious stories and apocalyptic visions of an early Jewish community. But also evidence for the source of the cultural practices and moral codes of all societies, both religious and now secular, that have descended from the Abrahamic tradition. So, to understand why people might be queuing up to see these little crumbling bits of parchment, it is crucial to know the context. And the ROM is providing a lot of context in an exhibition entitled "Dead Sea Scrolls: Words That Changed the World." The show is curated for the ROM by Risa Levitt Khan of San Diego State University, using 200 artifacts lent by the Israeli Antiquities Authority, the institution responsible for circulating the scrolls internationally, and is pleasingly displayed in the ROM's sometimes unforgiving basement exhibition hall. About half the floor space is taken over by a historical introduction to the world in which these texts were created. The majority of the artifacts on display are archaeological finds other than the scrolls themselves, but dating to the same period, including silver coins, daily pottery, ritual stoneware vessels, and ossuaries for holding the bones of the dead. The exhibition begins with a display about daily life in the Galilean town of Sepphoris, using it as an example of an observant Jewish community that has adapted the cultural trappings of the Hellenic world. Next, a room about Jerusalem during the period of the Second Temple recalls the assaults on the Jewish religion from the outside, the two revolts against Roman rule, and the sectarian conflicts on the inside. The show includes stones that fell from the temple when it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. It also includes some of the shiny Tyrian shekels that the Jews used to pay a tax to the temple priests, who valued the high silver content of the pagan coins. The moneylenders whom Christ attacked were changing local currencies for the shekels, and for those of us raised on Christian Bible stories, this is a moment when religious history becomes blindingly alive. 
It is a remarkable thing to gaze on the very currency that would have fallen to the floor when the moneylenders were ejected from the temple. From here, the exhibition marches towards the squirrels themselves, addressing the varying theories as to why about 900 documents were stored in jars in the caves at Qumran. Originally, scholars believe that Qumran must have been a monastic community of the Essens, an ascetic Jewish sect, and that the scrolls were the work of its priests. Increasingly, however, contemporary scholars argue that the scrolls represent too diverse a collection of texts to have been written by one sect, and wonder if they were hidden there to protect them in a time of great unrest. You get an amusing sense of how the archaeological data can be interpreted to suit each theory. The first group argues that the stacks of pottery bowls found at Qumran indicate it was home to a religious group that ate communally. The second points to kilns, also in the area, and argues Qumran was an important center for ceramics. The questions of who wrote the scrolls and why are still being hotly debated, and this exhibition tends to theories rather than conclusions. The eight scrolls on show for the first half of a six-month run include a section of the Book of Daniel never publicly displayed before, a section of Genesis telling the story of how Joseph is wrongfully accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and an apocalyptic text known as the Book of War, a blessing that was intended to be recited over the surviving Jews at the end of time. A second set of scrolls, including parts of Deuteronomy, never displayed before, will go on show at the midpoint of the exhibition's run to minimize light exposure. Also, a fragment showing the Ten Commandments will be on display from October 10th to 18th. All the fragments are displayed with full translations and ample information about their content, date, and material. Besides a fragment of the Book of Psalms, hidden speakers play a contemporary reading of a female voice singing psalms in Hebrew, to remind visitors these texts are sung in synagogues to this day. As her voice hovers hauntingly in the darkness, you have to wonder if moments such as this are enough to create for visitors that frisson of living history, that sense of a real physical link to the sources of Western and Islamic civilization, rather than a mere intellectual understanding of the scroll's importance. Perhaps it is better to demand less emotional drama of this exhibition, to view these fragments instead as a fragile cultural thread that, if we choose to grasp it, will lead us polyliterate, text-indulged moderns back toward a place where few could write and most writings were sacred. Dead Sea Scrolls, Words That Changed the World, continues at the Royal Ontario Museum until January 3, 2010. Kate Taylor was the author of that article titled Breathing Life into the Dead Sea Scrolls from the June 29th edition of the Globe and Mail. You're listening to the Arts and Entertainment Report on VoicePrint. Alistair McCauley is the author of this article titled Swan Song from the June 29th edition of the New York Times. The tender affection felt by both colleagues and audiences for the ballerina Nina Ananishvili is extraordinary. Other ballerinas are no less admired, but she singularly endearing is singularly cherished. This love affair reached its peak at the Metropolitan Opera House on Saturday night when she gave her farewell performance with American Ballet Theatre in the full-length Swang Lake. 
This is a ballet that most ballerinas and their partners like to follow by adopting the drained by emotion we have given all look of artistic martyrdom in keeping with the fact that Swan Lake ends with the double suicide of heroine and hero and an apotheosis in which they are reunited in love. Not so with Miss Anna Nishvili. She and her partner, Angel Corella, ran onto the stage beaming happily. Having given individual red roses from her first bouquet to Mr. Corella, to Marcelo Gomes, who had danced Rothbar and had partnered her earlier in the season in Giselle, and to other colleagues, she then merrily tossed the remainder of the bouquet with evident gratitude to American Ballet Theatre's orchestral players. Yet when each member of the corps de ballet came on with a single white rose, it was moving to observe the bond of emotion that existed between ballerina and ensemble, making Swan Lake, even in ballet theater's foolish production, a perfect vehicle for this farewell. No ballet makes so much of how the corps dancer's fate is bound up with the heroine's. Even at speed, Ms. Anna Chevalli had a different acknowledgement for each dancer, all of them affectionate, and her emotion demonstrated the humility of the true artist. The core dancers were joined by many of Ballet Theatre's principals and staff, and Ms. Anna Nia Chevalli, enchantingly spontaneous, greeted each one differently. When Irina Kolpakova, herself one of the supreme ballerinas of the 20th century and now a ballet theater coach, came on stage, Ms. Anna Shavili bowed low in reverence. Again, such modesty on such an occasion, rare in any artist, went straight to the heart. Most people presented flowers, but the conductor Ormsby Wilkins also gave her his baton. Miss Anna Nia Chevalli, whole face lit up in delight, seizing it, she rushed to the front of the stage and addressing the orchestral players again, beat time with several brisk bars. When her little daughter Elen was brought on, her maternal solicitude was in a different key, but still light-hearted. Flower petal confetti exploded onto the stage from either side. How can you top that? Miss Anna Nia Chevalli knew how. She made her next entrance on point, back to the audience, arms rippling. A laughing quotation of another ballet swan, the dying swan, which she sustained right across the stage until Mr. Corella lifted her in his arms in an enthusiastic embrace. Curtain calls continued before the house's gold curtains with Ms. Anna Nia Chevalli, now close to tears, now deftly catching bouquets with one hand, now creating yet further comedy. She did some more dying swan, and to the amazement of her two male partners, instructed them to repeat one of the most sensational effects from the coda of Act Three of Swan Lake. Mr. Gomes tossed her into the air to be caught, upside down in a fish position, by Mr. Corella. Was any farewell ever such fun?
In a historic career, she has traveled the world since 1986. I remember her that year as the youngest ballerina brought to London by the Bolshoi Ballet. Even the presence of such mature luminaries as Natalia Besmertanova and Ludmila Semenyaka did not for a moment eclipse the arrival of this major new talent. The radiant warmth with which she transcended the technical and stylistic challenges of the three-act Raimonda, with its six solo variations, each in so different a style, is an enduring memory. The amplitude of her dancing was glorious then, and has remained so through years, in which, epitomizing the new opportunities of Glashnost, she has danced Balanchine, choreography with New York City Ballet, Ashton and Macmillan, choreography with the two British Royal Ballet Companies, Bourninville, choreography with the Royal Danish Ballet. These are just the top items on her resume. I feel lucky to have witnessed most of them. Other Bolshoi and the Firebird and the Royal Ballet, she has been a superb exponent of Michel Forquen's choreography. I've seen only fractions of her 16-year career with American Ballet Theatre, but the way she rounded it off this season was characteristically diverse. Dancing ballets, classical and romantic, 19th century, 20th century, and 21st century, Alexei Rotmansky's Waltz Masquerade, without apparent strain and with often startling youthfulness. In Balanchine's Mozartiana on May 23rd, she was at her most multifaceted. The radiance that her slender physique creates in arabesque, the wit she achieves in intricate rhythm, the thrilling effects of sharp timing and the light playfulness and again humility of her manner made rich fair. In Swan Lake, she retains more than enough technique for all the big moments. As Odile, the black swan counterfeit version of the heroine Odette, she delivers the repeated foete, turns on one spot with changing arm positions and devours space and circuits of turns around the stage. An obvious sign of her artistry was the moment when Odile most obviously imitates Odette, rippling those arms and traveling on point towards the too easily duped hero, Prince Siegfried. It is a shame for the sake of all ballerinas that this production gave, give its heroine nothing to do in Act 4 but be passive. If Kevin McKenzie were less interested in scenic spectacle and more in expressive choreography, he would give his female artists the chance to make the double role of Odette Odile a great arc. In the versions by Ashton and, best of all, Lev Ivanov, the ballet's final act is the most intensely emotional one. This matters at other performances. On Saturday, Ms. Nana Shivali made the curtain calls into the climax of the evening and indeed the season. Amid all the excitement, I found it most marvelous that she still brought rare and eloquent beauty to tiny features. Nothing in this performance, not the turns, not the lifts, not the throw, not the alter ego Odette Odile opposition, was more riveting 
than simply the way during the white swan adagio, pas du tout, of Act Two, she slowly and softly brought her foot down from point, again and again, making the sole of her foot into an enthralling part of the drama. Alistair Macaulay was the author of that article titled Swan Song from the June 29th edition of the New York Times. Here is an article titled Making Love Matches and TV Stars by Trish Crawford from the June 29th edition of the Toronto Star. Newlyweds Lee and Anne-Marie Gerhardt are mobbed like rock stars wherever they go. Whether it's the grocery store, the gym, even on holiday in Atlantic City, people come up to us, says Lee, 37, I'm like, wow, adds Anne-Marie, 30. It boggles our mind. I can't tell you how many people take our pictures. The Philadelphia-area lovebirds are everyday people. She manages a medical practice, and he sells pacemakers and heart devices, who've become recognizable figures for telling their story in an eHarmony commercial. The online matchmaker's wildly popular television segments feature couples talking about their romance and how they found each other through eHarmony's scientific matching system created by clinical psychologist and former marriage counselor Neil Clark Warren. There's been internet speculation that the couples might be fake, but company officials say they are real and help the star locate those used in their advertisements. The Gerhardt's wedding pictures are even posted online by their photographer. Although Lee, whose mother told him about the site, thought the couples were real, he acknowledges that 20-30% of the people say they are surprised to see us together. They thought we were actors. Anne-Marie adds, People are surprised. We are real people. In the fiercely competitive world of online dating sites, which includes LavaLife, Match.com, and AshleyMadison.com for cheating marrieds, eHarmony carved out its niche catering to the marriage-minded. The centerpiece of their pitch is that people serious about relationships will find a lasting partner with them, and they have a long list of happy couples to prove it. A Harris poll conducted for eHarmony in 2007 found that 2.57%, or more than 43,051 marriages in the U.S., resulted from an eHarmony matchup. The nine-year-old company began using testimonial-style commercials in 2003, but took it up a notch in 2008 by doing location shooting and action shots with ad agency Donnett Wald. These mini-love stories are shown widely on cable channels, including HGTV and CTV Newsnet in Canada. So, instead of just seeing talking heads, there are beautifully shot scenes of Lee and Anne-Marie running down the street, bowling, hugging, and twirling. The couple, who married on May 3, 2008, admit they were unprepared for what unfolded after they volunteered to give a televised testimonial. The three-day shoot involved about a hundred people. They roped off streets and buildings, and we even had our own trailer. We felt like stars, Lee says. The unscripted commercial included the couple answering questions in their own words, says Anne-Marie, but the shots of them running down the street were the director's idea. It was so cold, that's why we kept running down the street so many times, she says. Has being on television changed their lives? To a degree, it definitely has, says Lee, recounting how a sommelier in a fancy restaurant in Atlantic City plunked herself down at their table to say she'd joined eHarmony after seeing their ad. At a popular bar in Philadelphia, a group of eight women in their 30s quizzed them about their online dating experience. 
Lee's brother Ron is getting sick of going out with him, Lee says, because of all the interruptions, including while buying cleats in a soccer store. The ad came on the in-store screen, and the shoppers started pointing at Lee and saying, "That's him." The biggest wow factor is that this happens every day, he says. The story continues to be relevant. It hasn't lost its luster. It is insane the number of people who recognize us. The private company, which doesn't reveal client numbers or profits, expanded into Canada in 2007. Membership, which costs $59.95 for one month, $19.95 per month for a year, has jumped 58% in the past year. Canadians Larissa Shenton, 21, and Michelle Savoy, 27, were small-town kids who moved to Toronto and found it difficult to connect with people in the big city. Shenton turned to eHarmony in 2008 after seeing earlier commercials featuring an older couple. What struck her, she says, was the emphasis on serious relationships. "I'm not one to date. I'm a serious person," says Shenton, who is majoring in biotechnical research and working in materials testing for the summer. Savoy, a credit card fraud investigator, rushed to romance after being sent Shenton's profile only a few days after signing up. They had their first date on March 8, 2008, and he proposed within a few months. They plan to marry next year when Shenton graduates, and are living together in an apartment outfitted with state-of-the-art exercise and weight training gear. The couple, who both enjoy working out, heavy metal music, and cooking at home, Savoy is an amazing cook, says Shenton, have already shared their experience as a successful couple on the company's Canadian website. E-Harmony officials are currently scouting Canadian couples as part of its next North American advertising campaign. Next year, it may be Shenton and Savoy who will be stopped on the streets in grocery stores and on vacation and asked, "Aren't you that couple on E-Harmony?" That was an article titled "Making Love Matches and TV Stars" by Trish Crawford from the June 29th edition of the Toronto Star. This is the Arts and Entertainment Report. Stay tuned for the health report coming up next on Voiceprint. Jackson Bio on shelves this week is the title of this article by John Barber from the June 29th edition of the Globe and Mail. Last week, Montreal publisher Transit Media was in court fighting to keep his company's controversial biography Guy La Liberté, the fabulous story of the creator Cirque du Soleil, on Canadian bookshelves. Now it's leading the worldwide scramble to exploit the death of Michael Jackson, hoping to have a hastily revised but long-anticipated biography of the singer printed and distributed as early as Tuesday. Both books are the work of Montreal-born author Ian Halperin, whose previous subjects include singers Celine Dion, James Taylor, and Kurt Cobain. While Halperin's portrait of La Liberté created an uproar when it was first published in Quebec this spring, the author first gained worldwide attention for the Jackson book in January, when British tabloids reported his predictions that the star would be dead within six months. Thanks to that ghoulish prescience, Halperin has become a staple figure in the post-mortem media frenzy. He claimed that Jackson was dying from a rare protein, protein disorder called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Alpha-1, a genetic disorder, can seriously damage the lungs and liver, and in some cases cause blindness. 
But cardiac arrest, the ostensible cause of Jackson's death, is not normally associated with the disease, a spokesperson for the Alpha One Association of America said Monday. At the time, a spokesman for Jackson said the singer was perfectly fine and denounced Halperin's story as a fabrication. But the author stuck to it. This Sunday, he added fuel to the fire by sharing more details with the London Daily Mail, including descriptions of Jackson's secret trysts with boyfriends and the alarming collapse of his health in the final days before his death. It was greed that killed Michael Jackson, the author claimed. It was clear that he was in no condition to do a single concert, let alone 50. He could no longer sing for a start. On some days, he could barely talk. He could no longer dance. Disaster was looming in London, and in the opinion of his closest confidants, he was feeling suicidal, Halperin added. The author also alleged Jackson suffered from emphysema and gastrointestinal bleeding. New York Simon & Schuster, which published Halperin's biography of dead rock star Kurt Cobain, reportedly has U.S. rights to the Jackson biography. The company did not return calls, nor did officials from U.S. Magazine, which is reportedly going to press with an excerpt this week. Halperin declined comment, except to say that he has been working on the book for six years, and it is no rush job. I timed it because I knew around this time he was a candidate to die. I'm being totally upfront about that. Jackson Bio on Shelves This Week was the title of that article by John Barber from the June 29th edition of the Globe and Mail. You've been listening to the Arts and Entertainment Report on VoicePrint. Your volunteer readers have been Angela Kreihel and Donica Conge. This program was produced for you by Tony King. Thank you for listening to VoicePrint.